If you want to open your Bibles to Romans 3, 19 through 26, Romans 3, 19 through 26, we are in a sermon series called The, the Unbreakable Chain of Salvation, and um, our, our sort of uh, home-based text for this is in Romans 8, 29 and 30, and there uh, the Apostle Paul is, is telling us about this, this great uh, golden, unbreakable, indestructible chain of salvation that's made up of different links. And he's, he's basically answering the question, when we say that God saves a person, what are we talking about? And he tells us that those who are saved are those whom God predestined and called and justified and glorified. Um, and uh, we're kind of taking each of these words and just kind of unpacking them and talking about what they mean. Uh, and, and as we look at the rest of the New Testament, we see that there are other links uh, in this, this chain of salvation that are not mentioned uh, in Romans 8.30, but are, are thus also uh, very important because they are uh, in very real ways what we mean when we talk about God saving people. Uh, but as we look at uh, this chain, if you want to go to the next one, uh, we see these various links talked about in the New Testament, predestined or elected, uh, called and regenerated, converted. And now we're at the fourth link, this word justified, this word justification. Uh, this, this is the, the fourth link of uh, what we're talking about when we say that God has saved a person. And we'll go on to, in the next few weeks, look at adopted, sanctified um, perseverance and glorified to explain uh, what those words mean. Uh, but this morning, here we are uh, at this word justified in a wonderful text that kind of summarizes what justification is. And there are a lot of, of wonderful texts in the New Testament that summarize what justification is, but a really um, beautiful, wonderful, excellent text that summarizes what justification is, is Romans three nineteen through 26. Some people have even said this is the most important uh, paragraph in the entire Bible. Some have even said this paragraph contains the most important sentence in the entire Bible. Uh, and I, maybe that's true, I don't know, it's hard to say, but uh, it's incredibly important as we seek to define what justification is and what it means for us as God's people. So let's read this text. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence, let's listen with joy, and let's listen because this is the word of our God. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin." But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this great gift, this gift of justification. And pray that you would open our eyes to see what this text is talking about, open our ears to hear what this text is talking about, soften our hearts to receive what this text is talking about, and strengthen our wills to live in light of it always, to believe it, to cling to it, to rest in it. We pray that as we listen, that you would magnify Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, um, I don't know if you all have ever seen The Good Place, um, the TV show, The Good Place. Uh, Amy and I, uh, we, we watched it. We didn't finish it. Just one too many uh, dramatic plot twists for our tastes, I suppose. But... Um, But The Good Place, it was uh, really just a few years ago that show offered a bit of um, light-hearted, pleasant entertainment in a world of people who were freaking out, as if we thought we had anything to freak out about a few years ago. Um, But uh, it's it's this, uh, the premise of this series is about this woman named Eleanor Shellstrop who has died and been sent to what they call The Good Place. The Good Place is heaven or paradise or something along those lines. Um, and this is the place where people are, are sent to after death if they've lived a righteous life. Unrighteous people, on the other hand, are sent to the, the bad place. They go to the bad place. However, it seems that Eleanor's been sent to the good place by mistake. She's actually lived a, an unrighteous life, and due to a, an honest mistake, um, an honest mix-up, she got sent to the good place, and now she's got to simultaneously hide her morally reprehensible past and also learn to be a righteous person in order to keep her stay there. And you see, Eleanor has got to do this because the system which decides whether or not someone goes to the good place is a rather simple system of, of merits and, and points. And so it's kind of like um, a bank account. And the righteous things you do adds to your account, but the unrighteous things you do takes away from, makes withdrawals from your account. And if you don't have enough additions and you have too many withdrawals, you go into the negative. And if you are in the negative, at the moment you die, you go to the bad place. If you're in the positive, then you go to the good place. And of course, part of what's so interesting about that, uh, that show and the premise there is, is, is that most religions and worldviews seem to operate and believe something, something pretty similar to that merit and points system. So the Roman Catholic Church believes, uh, has, a, has a kind of similar system. Admittedly, it's, it's a lot more complex than that, but it's, it's kind of similar Islam holds to a similar kind of system of merit and points. The, the first century Jews in Jesus' day and Paul's day believed in something similar to that. Your average person on the street, if you were to ask them, would believe something similar to that. And furthermore, what's even more fascinating is the majority of people actually think themselves to be in the positive and heading toward the good place or heaven or paradise or whatever else they might call it if they believe in such a place or uh, or, or think that such a place could exist. But you see, the Bible actually teaches something radically, scandalously different than that. The Bible teaches something called justification through faith alone. And this is our fourth link. 
And justification is a word of good news, not for people who think that their accounts are in the positive, but for those who know that they have overdrawn again and again and again and again, who are in debt up to their eyeballs and have no hope of recovery. Those who know that in God's courtroom, they have received the guilty verdict and stand condemned by him. And the Bible actually teaches that that's all of us. All of us have received the guilty verdict. All of us stand condemned in and of ourselves. And what we need, we're in the negative, like way in the negative. And what we need is someone who's not in the negative, but someone who's loaded. Someone who's loaded, someone who's actually righteous, abounding in a wealth of perfect righteousness, who's never sinned and never made a withdrawal, and we need that person to credit his righteousness to our account. We're all condemned. We've been given the guilty verdict in God's court of law, and what we need is someone to come and pay our fines so we can go free, and that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so this is a word for those of us who have utterly blown it and know it. This is a word for guilty, broken, ashamed sinners. This is a word of freedom for you. And this word is is justification. Justification. And so we're going to look at how badly we need it, how it works, and how to get it. So justification... Three hows, how badly we need it, how it works, how to get it. And as we run through those, we're going to see this big idea. Because of Christ, God counts his people righteous through faith. So first, how badly we need it. We need it according to verses 19 and 20. Up to this point, in the book of Romans, from Romans 1, 18, up until this text, Paul has been making an argument. He's been writing to the church in Rome about how all people are sinful, and are therefore justifiably condemned by God. Because God is uncompromisingly righteous. And so because of that, he cannot tolerate or excuse sin. He, he, he doesn't wink at sin. He hates sin. He abhors it. He must punish it because he's uncompromisingly righteous. And Paul's writing this because there's been a bit of a scuffle between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church in Rome. They were both trying to assert something of a privileged position in the church based on their ethnic identities. The Jews were saying, listen, we're the ethnic group who were entrusted with the scriptures. We've been God's people for long before y'all Gentiles even knew who Yahweh was. We need to be running things around here. We need to be in charge. But then the Gentiles were saying, no, 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 your, your day is over. Your day is over. It's, it's time for us. We haven't, we haven't failed in keeping the covenant. It's our turn, and we need to be running things around here. But now Paul approaches this from a completely different standpoint. Paul comes in and says, no, no, no. No one has a leg up in the kingdom of God. All are condemned sinners. No one has privileged status in the kingdom of God. Neither Jew nor Gentile. The whole world stands condemned before God, and the law was given to show us that fact. The law was given... To show us the fact that, as Paul says in Romans 3, 10, and 11, that no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. 
God's law has shown all to be sinners, all to be condemned, all to be unrighteous, and therefore no one has privileged status based on their ethnic identity or any other part of their identity in the kingdom of God. And then in verses 19 and 20 here, Paul kind of summarizes what he's been saying from Romans 1, 18 uh, up until now. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So justified, there, it means to be counted righteous. No one will be counted righteous by the law. He's saying that all the world has sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. And so God has given his law in order to reveal that fact. The law was given so that people would come to recognize and see their sin. It was given to show us how sinful we actually are. It, where we, where, when we all stand before God at the judgment and given an account for our lives, God will be completely just to condemn us to hell forever. And we know it because of God's law. You know, I, I like this, this guy uh, who, who lives out in uh, California, this evangelist type um, named Ray Comfort. And uh, he's got this kind of standard way that he, he shares the gospel with people. And, and much like Paul here, he starts with the law to show our, our condemnation. He goes through, um, I almost want to call it like a dress rehearsal for Judgment Day. And he goes through a, a series of of questions, people based on the, on the Ten Commandments to show that on Judgment Day, we are hopeless in and of ourselves. And so to illustrate this, I, I want to do a bit of that this morning. So let's do a little dress rehearsal for Judgment Day. I want you to imagine that you are in a courtroom. God's on the bench. He's got a robe. He's got the gavel. And, and he's going to judge you based on the way that you've lived your life, your actions, your words, your thoughts, your intentions. And let's just, look, let's just look at some of the Ten Commandments. We won't even look anywhere else in the Bible. We'll just look at some of the most basic, universally accepted laws found in the Ten Commandments. So in your court, God's on the bench, and it's time for you to give an account for your life. And so the Lord says, um, have you ever stolen anything? The, the, the Ten Commandments say, you shall not steal. It's the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. Have you ever stolen anything? No matter how big, how small, it's not, no matter how young you were, how old you were, have you ever stolen? Yes. The Ten Commandments also say not to, not to bear false witness. That's the, the Ninth Commandment. Have you, ever, have you ever lied in your life? Again, no matter how big, how small, no matter how young, how old, have you ever lied before in your life? Yes. Or how about this one? One of the, the Ten Commandments, the third commandment, says not to take God's name in vain. Have, have, have you ever dishonored, disrespected, misrepresented God's name? Have, have you ever used his name as a cuss word? That's called blasphemy. That's punishable by death in the Old Testament. As God's special creation, he created you to love and cherish his name. You, you never use your, your mother's name as a cuss word. Well, God is the one who's given you life and breath and movement and food and clothing and every good gift. Why would you dishonor his name? How about this? How about, how about murder and adultery? Those might be ones that you think you have down. Murder, 
and adultery. You, you might feel you've kept those commands. You've never murdered anyone, have you? Well, not so fast, you know, because Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 6 that anyone who nurses resentment and bitterness toward another person in their heart is a murderer at heart, and that anyone who lusts after another person in their heart is an adulterer at heart. Have you ever been resentful or bitter toward another person? Have you ever lusted after another person in your heart? Well, listen, I'm imagining that things are not looking good for us right now. Based on these commandments, we are liars, we are thieves, we are blasphemers, we are murderers and adulterers at heart. And so when we stand before God at the judgment, if we stand before him in our own righteousness, do you know what he's going to say? Guilty. He's going to swing that gavel down and declare you guilty. Guilty. Spending eternity in the lake of fire if you depend on your own righteousness before him. You might come up with some excuses. Well, I've done some good things too. I, 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 I volunteered at that soup kitchen. I gave some money to that man on the on-ramp of the highway. I, 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 you know, doesn't that count for anything? What do you think that if you were in a court of law being tried as a criminal... That your good deeds would count for anything? If, a, if there was a judge trying a murderer downtown Dayton here, and the murderer is guilty, it's clear he's guilty, but he said, but I've done some good things too. I, I, I gave someone a few bucks who was in need. I volunteered that one time. I've done some good things too. Doesn't that count for anything? That judge would be a horrible judge if he let him off for that. That's not how the law works. You're not judged based on your good deeds. You're judged on your crimes. Your good deeds don't add to your merits. Your crimes declare you guilty. That's why, why, why the whole system of merit and points and, and the good place and in all these religions and worldviews don't actually work. The situation is much more dire and desperate than that. We stand condemned before God because he's uncompromising in his justice and his righteousness and his judgment. God will not bend or break his own rules. He will not violate his own conscience. He will not wink at sin. He will not excuse it or let it go undealt with. And so you see here, one, one, of, the, one of the first things needed before we even begin to understand the Bible's teaching about justification is that we're guilty. You need to know that you're a sinner standing condemned in and of yourself. You need to let go of any illusions that you're a good person. You need to come to terms with the fact that before God, you're a sinner. You were born a sinner, you've lived as a sinner, and you're going to die as a sinner unless Jesus, unless God does something drastic. And the good news of justification is that God has done something drastic. God has done something drastic. It's called justification. This is God's way for letting condemned criminals like us go free. So look with me next at how it works. Pick it back up in verse 21. Paul goes on to write, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now here again, we're reminded that God is uncompromisingly righteous. His righteousness is perfect. He cannot let guilty sinners go free. He can't just tolerate or overlook sin. He cannot accept or receive guilty people into his kingdom and family. And yet that's a problem because what other kind of people are there? There's no other kind of people. And yet God has been accepting and receiving guilty people into his kingdom and family since the fall. He's been treating guilty, sinful people like they're righteous. He treated Abraham like he was righteous. And Abraham was not a righteous man. He tried to pimp out his wife out of fear. He treated Moses as righteous. Moses was not a righteous man. Moses murdered an Egyptian soldier. He treated David as a righteous man. David was not righteous. He treated many, many people in the Old Testament as righteous. And yet they were sinful and broken and guilty. And he still does the same today. How does he do that? How can he do that and yet still remain uncompromised in his righteousness? Well, now that Jesus Christ has come, we know why and how the Lord has done this. We now know how the uncompromisingly righteous God has justified wicked, guilty, sinful men and women, and how he still does the same today. And the way he does it is by kind of a big word, but you're smart and I know you can handle it. It's by something called double imputation. Double imputation. There we go. So double imputation. So, so j- to be justified, again, it means it's a word that means to be counted righteous. When someone is justified, it's a legal term that literally means that someone is counted as righteous. And in fact, we see this exact definition used by Paul in Romans 4, 3, and 5, just the next uh, chapter here. There, instead of using the single word justified, he uses the full phrase. He says that when Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. That's justification. It means to be counted as righteous. And as we've already seen, no one's getting counted righteous by the law. The law shows us that we aren't righteous. It shows us that we're condemned. And that begs the question then, how can guilty people, how can God count guilty people as righteous? Double imputation. You need someone who is perfectly righteous to come and take on your wickedness and unrighteousness, your sin, your sin needs to be imputed or, or, or credited to them, and then they need to take the punishment you deserve for your unrighteousness. And then in exchange, you need, to, you need them to give you their perfect righteousness. You need their righteousness imputed or credited to you. Your righteousness bank account is way in the negative, way, 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 way in the negative. And you need someone who's loaded to come and take on all of your debt upon himself and to put all of his wealth of righteousness in your account. You need a perfectly righteous citizen to come into the courtroom and say, I'll pay his penalty, I'll pay her penalty, and they can have my status as a perfectly righteous citizen and thus go free. That's double imputation. And that's what Jesus has done for us. 
our sin is imputed, or the synonym, the synonym is, is the word credited. Our sin is imputed or credited to Christ on the cross. When we put our faith in him, his righteousness is imputed or credited to us. He has come and lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived. And yet, our sin and unrighteousness was imputed and credited to him, and he went to the cross to bear the punishment and wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin. That's what that word propitiation means there in verse 25. Propitiation is a wrath-appeasing sacrifice. But then in taking on our unrighteousness and the punishment we deserve for it, in exchange, Jesus gives us his perfect righteousness and the reward of eternal life he deserved for it. We are counted righteous with the very righteousness of God. That's what this passage is teaching. And Paul actually also summarizes it very well in a beautiful text, 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read it earlier, that where Paul says, for our sake, God made him, that's Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Double imputation. Christ counted sinful on the cross, us counted righteous in him. The reformers in the 1500s used to call this the great exchange. It's this great exchange. Christ, though perfectly righteous, takes our sin and in exchange gives us his righteousness. So that we who are sinful are counted perfectly righteous in him. And you know, they used to use this, this story to illustrate this, this story of a wedding. The story of a wedding. And, and it's the story of this, this great wealthy king and his marriage to this poor, lowly prostitute. There's this, this king representing Jesus who falls in love with and, and marries a poor girl of ill repute, a poor prostitute in his kingdom, actually, representing us. And at their wedding, they would exchange their, their vows with one another. And she would say to him, as they exchanged their vows at the wedding ceremony, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. And at that moment, he would take all of her debt, all of her poverty, all of her shame. But then he would say, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. And at that exact moment, she would take on all of his riches. All of his power, his position, his prestige, all that he is and all that he has, from that day forward, she can boldly claim as her own. And so it is with our great Savior and in the great exchange here. He comes and he takes on all of our guilt and shame and the wrath of God and the punishment we deserve on the cross. But he shares with us his righteousness and his blessing. This is how we're justified before God. This is how we can stand before God as people who are counted righteous, not bearing the righteousness of our own, but Christ's righteousness. All that he is and all that he has, we can boldly claim as our own before the God and King of the universe. That's how it works. And please understand, this goes way beyond mere forgiveness. Some people will define justification as, as merely forgiveness. Some people will say that justification is, is God treating us just as if I never sinned, using the little play on words there, just as if I never sinned. Please understand, that falls far short of what justification actually is. 
Justification is not mere forgiveness. Justification is not merely our being declared innocent. It doesn't bring us up from a place of debt to a place of neutrality at like a zero balance. No, it doesn't just take away our debt. It credits Christ's righteousness to our account so that in terms of righteousness, we are now loaded. And think about the implications of this, Christian. This means that God is not merely okay with you. He's not merely okay with you. He's not neutral towards you. He's not merely tolerating you. He delights in you. Zephaniah 3.17 says that he rejoices over you and exalts over you with loud singing. You make his day. He's, he's, because of justification, he's like a husband who when his wife walks in the room, he beams. He gives you his total approval, his total acceptance, his total loyalty, all of that. And from the one with whom it ultimately matters, the God of the universe. He gives you all of this and more as a divine right because of the reality of justification. And if that doesn't excite you, I don't know what will excite you because that's good news. That's the best news. That's freedom. Freedom from sweat equity salvation found in the good place or whatever other religion or worldview out there. Freedom from over-dependence on the approval and acceptance of others because you found it in the God of the universe. Freedom from wondering whether or not God is mad at you. Newsflash, he's not. This is freedom. And that just begs the question, how do we get in on this? How do we get in on this? Look with me lastly at how to get it. The answer is faith. How do we get it? The answer is faith and faith alone. Faith alone receives God's gift of justification. Look at verse 22. This gift of justification is given through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So he says, it's given through faith in Jesus Christ, but just in case you missed it, he adds, for all who believe. But then, just in case you missed it again, Paul says again in verse 25 that this gift is to be received by faith. But just on the off chance that you're not getting the picture, you didn't catch it quite yet, he wants to be crystal clear. Verse 26, Paul calls God the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And remember what faith is. We saw last week that saving faith is a knowing, agreeing, and trusting faith. The person who has saving faith is the person who knows the good news about Jesus Christ and his saving work. But what's more is that they also agree with this good news about Jesus Christ and his saving work. They believe that Jesus truly died on the cross to suffer the penalty of the sins of his people and rose again on the third day. But what's more is they personally trust in Christ. They personally trust him for their own salvation. We saw last week this illustration for this in the missionary work of John Patton. One day he was sitting in his chair as a a local woman was walking by. He was working on his Bible translation in the Anawan language. And so as she passed by, he, he asked her, hey, what am I doing right now? What am I doing here? And she said the Anawan word for, for sitting. You're sitting in that chair. But then 
he put his feet up on the desk and he leaned back in his chair completely and he said, what am I doing now? And she said, Fakarang Grongoy, you are leaning completely. You have lifted yourself from every other support and have leaned completely on that chair to hold you. That's the nature of saving faith. It trusts in Christ. It leans on Christ and it lifts itself from every other support to lean on Christ completely. You see, this is why we have to deal with the law and sin and the hopelessness of our salvation and then of ourselves before we can even begin to understand justification. Because in all reality, you need to recognize the folly, we need to recognize the folly of leaning on anything else other than Christ to make us acceptable and righteous before him. Every other support has to be swept out from under us. We have to be naked in order to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. Our hands have to be empty to receive this good gift. We have to see ourselves as condemned before we can be counted righteous. It's the only way. And because of that, for some of us, for some of us, it's not what we think of as our sins that keep us from coming to Christ. It's actually our perceived righteousness. For some, it's not our worst deeds that keep us from Christ. It's our best deeds. We don't understand that we need Christ. We don't understand that we're condemned, hopeless, helpless without him. The great Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, once put it well when he said this. He said, beware of self-righteousness in every possible shape and form. Some people get as much harm from their virtues as others do from their sins. He said that because some of us view ourselves as righteous, as virtuous, as good, so much so that God's justifying grace in Jesus Christ is too far beneath us to accept. And so we don't lift ourselves from every other support. We lean on self and morality and law and virtue instead of Christ and Christ alone. And thus we do the very thing that God hates. We remain proud in our sin, too good for Christ and his gospel. And so when it comes to how to get it, the only answer is and must be faith. Trust in Christ. Lean on Christ. Depend on Christ. Unclench your hands and let go of all that you think will make you worthy before God. And open your empty hands to receive God's free gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. Now as we come to some, some brief application. My exhortation to you in this, in this portion here is, is very simple and straightforward. It's just believe it. Believe it. If you trust in Jesus Christ this morning, believe that God has justified you, counted you righteous with the righteousness of Christ, that's it. Really, th this is one of the most practical things you can do this morning. If you believe it, it's going to revolutionize your world. And I know this because it's revolutionized the entire world, actually, several times before. And it, it revolutionized the Greco-Roman world in the first and second centuries. As this message went forth, completely revolutionized the world. When this, when this doctrine, the justification of faith alone, was rediscovered by Martin Luther in the 1500s, it revolutionized, it transformed the Western world. When this when this doctrine justification through faith alone was preached 
and Congregationalist churches in the U.S. colonies and, and in Anglican and Methodist churches in the 1700s. It ushered in the great awakening in England and the U.S. colonies. It will set your heart ablaze with joy and assurance and peace. It will lift burdens of guilt and shame and fear and anxiety off of your shoulders. Therefore, I'm not going to give you a list of things to do this morning. I'm going to tell you to just believe it. For guilty, ashamed, fear-driven sinners, believe it. For the person who's been wondering lately if God is mad at you and you feel like you're a piece of garbage, believe it. If for the person who's, who's been working yourself at your job, dog-tired to earn status and approval and trying to earn your okayness in life, believe it. For the parent who yelled at your kids for the 17th time this morning on the way to church, and you're just wondering, when am I going to get my act together? Believe it. For the, for the children who feel like you've been nothing but a disappointment to your parents, believe it. For, for, the, for the, 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 the guy who's tried and failed again and again and again to stop looking at pornography and you hate yourself for it, believe it. For, for the person who has been suffering under the oppression of political idolatry over the last year, and you're so exhausted and you're starting to see the folly of it, believe it. For the person who, who, who's been overeating to satisfy a hunger that food can't satisfy and to ease a pain that food can't ease, believe it. For the woman who's had multiple abortions, Believe it. For, for, for the prostitutes, the prodigals, the profane among us, if you're beat up, burned out, exhausted with sweat, equity, salvation, withering away under guilt, shame, and fear, believe it. For the person who feels their sins are too much for them to handle, and you don't even know the half of it, believe it. Justification is the word that changes the subject. From your utter unworthiness to the all-glorious, sufficient righteousness of Jesus Christ for you. If you trust in Christ, believe that God has counted you righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And there's therefore no condemnation, only full acceptance of you forevermore. Nothing you do can change it. Nothing can take it away. It's yours as a free gift if only you'll receive it. And more, more could be said. We could go on and on for hours and hours and talk about the, the implications of believing in justification through faith alone. And maybe we'll do that at some point in time in the future. We could talk about how justification is actually the only way to bring together people of different races and ethnicities and different socioeconomic brackets and, and different political parties and creates a culture of true biblical inclusion. We could talk about how justification leads to good works. We could talk about how, how justification will, will, will lead to reconciliation to God and to one another. We could talk about how justification leads to peace and a quieted conscience within. We could talk about all this and more, but it starts and flows from here. Just believe it. Because of Christ, God counts his people righteous through faith. Because of Christ, God has counted you, Christian, righteous through faith. 
And if Christ is your righteousness, your acceptance is sure, your okayness is secure, you are approved of by God. You have the approval of the only person with whom it ultimately matters in the universe, the God who created you. Because Christ is perfectly righteous, and his righteousness isn't changing. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your position is secure. Your acceptance is secure. God's justifying grace is the free gift of God's righteousness credited to your account through faith. May we believe this, and may we live in light of it always. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for sending Jesus to take on our sin and the punishment we deserve for it on the cross. And we thank you for granting us true belief so that we can trust in him and receive the gift of his righteousness. I pray that if there's anyone here who has not trusted in Christ and received that free gift and know the, knows the freedom that comes with that, I pray that you would open their eyes, open their ears, soften their hearts right now to receive it. For those of us who have received it, who have been struggling with ongoing feelings of guilt and shame and fear, I pray that you would relieve us of that right now. Help us to let that go and to believe what you have declared to be true in your word, that all of your people are declared righteous, are counted as righteous in Jesus Christ. Help us to rest in that always and to live from it always for the sake and glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.